Shapers on Jazz FM. Listen in color. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Put a spell on you Cause you're mine That was I Put a Spell on You from none other than Nina Simone. Good morning. This is Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, here on Jazz FM. Thank you very much for joining me. Jazz Shapers, the place where you can hear the very best of the people shaping the world of jazz, blues and soul, alongside their equivalent in the world of business. My business shaper today is M.T. Rainey. She is the founder of Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolf. It's a bit of a mouthful, I know. A very, very famous advertising agency in the UK, as well as being chairman of Think, uh, a digital agency, um, becoming more famous as we speak. You'll be hearing lots from her very shortly. In addition to hearing from MT, you'll also be hearing from our programme partners at Mishkondorea, some words of advice for your business. And as well as all of that, I hear you cry, yes, some fantastic music from the shapers of jazz, blues and soul, including the elder statesman Nancy Wilson, Jason Moran, and this from bluesman Eric Bibb. <laughs> a young man still a boy to be told took my guitar that was silver spoon from eric bibb this is jazz shapers thank you very much for joining me my business shaper today is mt rainey otherwise known as marie therese uh, in the business of advertising everyone knows her as mt and boy she made a name for herself in the world of advertising she was one of the founders of rainey kelly campbell rolf as i said the agency behind virgin atlantic behind the bbc and a mother and some and marks and spencers as well as other incredibly high profile brands she's also um the chairman of think which is a digital agency she's on the board of channel four i know it's ridiculous you'll be here very shortly and be amazed at this incredible woman and she's also the vice chair of skill set the sector skills council for the creative industries what an intro you've (laughs) got to live up to that now quite long very long (laughs) well there's lots to talk about thank you so much for joining me now you've described yourself as the accidental entrepreneur and we'll come on to that in a bit how you founded this great agency with your partners Tell me about w- where it started in advertising, and, and 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 I want to understand why you got into it. How did it all begin for you? Uh, probably, like most people, a little bit of luck um, and a little bit of judgment. So I came from uh, directly from Glasgow University. I did a PhD in psychology. I had no idea what I wanted to do, and I sort of discovered advertising by chance. Uh, my first job was in publishing and one of the things we published was Campaign Magazine. This was for IPC and Campaign Magazine was by far the most glamorous publication that we had and I thought, well, this industry looks interesting Um, and just discovered the world of advertising and decided I wanted to be in it and blagged my way into it, leveraging my 
very brief publishing experience. So a um, bit of luck. But 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 it was a it was an industry that fascinated me. This was in the very late 70s. Um, I could see that uh, advertising was a booming industry. It was creative and it was also analytical. It was clearly very commercial and very competitive, but it was full of interesting people and lots of interesting creative people. And I just thought, what a great business to try and get into. So so I did. Now, you managed to um, end up working in America for a very famous agency called Shiat Day at that time. And um, story has it that you ended up working with Steve Jobs himself and were part of the the team behind ensuring that that incredibly famous Apple commercial in 1984, called 1984, made it onto the screens. What was it like working alongside someone like Steve Jobs? Because people always talk about these icons of business, and there aren't many people I've met that have actually worked with them. How would you sum him up? Well, first of all, Steve Jobs then isn't the icon that we think of him now. I mean, this was in 1983 where I first um, actually got a call to go and work in America when I'd only been in the business for three years. I'd never been to America. I'd never been to San Francisco. I didn't know anyone there. Um, I didn't know very much about technology, and they did want me to go and work on a range of technology businesses. Apart from that, and though, I was, it was afraid perfect. I was afraid of flying, so I thought, <laughs> well, this is perfect. So I thought, I'll do this. Um, and actually, the agency wasn't famous, but it did become more. Um, but it was right at the birth of the whole Silicon Valley thing, and Apple was at the centre of that. So the idea of going over to work with Steve Jobs, who wasn't famous then. He was known, and if you did a bit of research, you you would have known him. And certainly Apple was known, but not famous. Um, very much a small company then, a very sort of upstart company, not the Apple we know now. So it was fantastic, but it was nothing like, it wasn't like being thrust into the iconic um, Apple business and the iconic personality of Steve Jobs that we know now. He, he was, however, a, a really fantastic person to meet uh, and to have met so early in my life and early in my career. He, he was blessed with a great chip on his shoulder that really drove him um, and he was determined through the Macintosh to democratise uh, computing power. And this was in the days, if you can imagine, where the word personal computer was an oxymoron. I mean, you had big mainframes and you didn't have little computers at all. You didn't have, people couldn't use computers. And his vision was really to unleash that power that was really only held by very few people and very few companies and bring it to people. And, and that was really what was driving his vision. His vision really was quite sociological, actually. Well, stay with me to find out why it was sociological, because we're going to touch a bit more on um, the not-famous Steve Jobs <laughs> then and where M.T. Rainey's life went next. Time for some music. This is Montreux Sunrise from The Elder Statesman. That was Montreux Sunrise from The Elder Statesman. M.T. Rainey and Marie-Thérèse, in case you want to know what it stands for and you weren't listening earlier, M.T. Rainey is my business shaper. As I said, she uh, she's the founder of Rainey Kelly Campbell Rolf, a very famous advertising agency, and has many very important positions in the creative world. We were talking earlier about uh, the 1983 not-famous Steve Jobs, but still a fantastic <laughs> guy. You mentioned something, M.T., and I want to talk about it specifically because I think it, it it unpacks a lot about all sorts of successful people. Just very briefly, you mentioned you said he had a chip on his shoulder. What was the nature of the chip and how did it drive him? I think the nature of the chip was this 
fear that he had that computers I mean he was a computer scientist he was in he was in the the, the sort of Xerox labs he, he was a, a very early days computer scientist and I think he definitely felt that computers had to belong to people that power had to be given to people so it was a chip in his shoulder about power like many of us have you know many of us have you know we have to un, we have to democratize everything don't we but computing power was what he wanted to democratize and I think he'd had an interesting family background obviously I think most people know some of the story of that he was very much his own man. He was not deferential to anyone. He was very curious. He was very demanding and he was extremely ambitious. There was no, nothing practical got in the way of his ambition. He, he didn't see any practical barriers to achieving what he wanted to achieve. Now, that summary of him um, and now thinking about you for a moment, how does it, you, you became, I mean, he, he had a vision, as you said, and an, an Apple earlier this year announced, I think, the largest ever quarterly profits in the history of corporate the corporate world um so things happened and obviously had a very very bumpy journey for you though you came back from the states you were asked to run the shire day agency in the uk and then opportunities arose for you to end up setting up your own business what's your chip what helped you become the person that you became the the runner (laughs) of a company i don't think my chip is silicon that's for sure but um I don't know. I think I I think I have that. It's a bit Scottish. It's a bit female, um, and it's a bit kind of working class in a way. I I, I really wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to not um, conform to practices that I thought were antediluvian or wasteful or inefficient. Um, I loved working for Shite Day for 10 years. But at the end of 10 years, back in the UK, I could see that our industry was changing. And I just really wanted to do something where we could start again, kind of re-engineering, pre-engineering an agency for the for the way the advertising business was going, not where it had been. And partly inspired by how great and how innovative and ahead of the curve Shite Day was for all those years. So um, so I guess my chip is, 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 is just always trying to do the next thing, the, the right thing, something better for the industry that I love. Now, obviously, you have to make that up because you don't know. Because the, the, by, the, by definition, the nature of innovation is that you smash the things that were there before, but you don't know if it's going to work because it hasn't been hasn't happened. In the early years of Rainey Kelly, um, early in the early nineties, was it clear that things were going to work, or were there moments when you doubted the recipe of the four of you that had come together? No, I didn't doubt it. Um, I knew I had picked some fantastic uh, partners and that was really key to it. I could not have done it on my own and neither could they. Um, it was a great partnership. I, it was it, it was a great, um, there were four of us and we hired some very good people very early on. Um, I knew our idea was that um, the way that the industry was changing, the way that media was becoming decoupled from creativity and yet agencies were still charging based on the commission system was kind of antediluvian and also really unfair, unfair for, for agencies that worked particularly hard and did particularly well and unfair to clients who had to pay the same money for agencies that didn't work very hard and didn't do particularly well. So um, so we wanted to create a, a kind of payment structure that was much more around um, valuing ideas and creativity and decoupling it from that media equation and I knew that was right and that turned out to be right and I think that was it was I mean obviously the agency had to do great work for its clients but I think that fundamental premise of understanding how the industry was changing and changing our structures around that really was compelling to clients as well. 
Stay with me for more from my business shaper, MT Rainey, and find out how the antediluvian, or rather anti-antediluvian chip on her particular shoulder has ensured that she's carried on trailblazing. Latest travel coming up in a couple of minutes, but before that, some words of wisdom for your business from our programme partners at Mishkon Dorea. Hi, my name's Nadim Mir, and I'm a partner at Mishkon Dorea in the private equity team. A key thing to be thinking about if you are looking to raise funds is, given that it is maybe less difficult than it used to be to raise the money, if you do have a good growth story, then actually you are in a pretty good position to maybe be a bit more choosy as to who you partner with. Um, And I think a, a key thing to remember is that when you go into this relationship with an investor or group of investors, you do need to see it as very much like a relationship. It is effectively a marriage of sorts. And obviously we know the best sorts of marriages tend to be the ones where both sides uh, go in with their eyes open um, and they're both supportive parties to uh, to the marriage um, and where people think they can work well together. So it's not necessarily about the party that's going to leave you with the most equity or the one with the biggest checkbook. It's about the party who you are going to get on well with, work well with, and hopefully, say, live happily ever after with. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You're listening to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss. Every Saturday morning from 9am sharp here on Jazz FM, you get to hear me asking hopefully some pertinent questions of my wonderful shapers from the world of business. If you've missed any, then go into iTunes, and you can look them all up there, or at least most of them. If you're on a British Airways flight, I believe you can catch them over there. FT.com and CityAM are also at your disposal. MT Rainey, or Marie-Thérèse Rainey, if you didn't know, her full name is my business shaper today. If you were listening earlier, you will know that she's the founder of one of the most iconic and successful ad agencies of the last 20 years, Rainey Kelly Campbell-Rolf. She's the chairman of Think, which is a digital agency. She's also on the board of Channel 4. I'm going to stop there before I embarrass her anymore. Mm. Lots of things to celebrate. We were talking about partnership, MT. Um, we were talking about breaking antediluvian practices and charging clients what they ought to be charged rather than just some notional number based on how much media mm-hmm. you actually bought. In the years that led up to you selling, and you sold the business, I believe, in around 2005, is that right? I know. We sold the business at the end of the, se- at the, end of the century. End of fact, the century. Yeah. Sorry, yes. Just, yeah, we sorry. did party like it was. You yeah, did party yeah. like it was, exactly. Um, when you sold, were you happy or did you feel like you had unfinished business? No, we we sold. Um, it was our it was our intent to sell very specifically to this company that we sold to, which was Young and Rubicum, um, which had a f- fabulous big old madman type uh, Madison Avenue classic old agency in America, very famous, very wonderful brand, uh, but struggling in London at the time. Had uh, a big office, um, and we knew that if we were if we could helicopter into that office and that brand and that business, we could really help change from a much bigger bigger platform. Um, change the world of advertising and we were the 21st biggest agency in Lon- in the UK when we sold and why in our London that big brand was the 20th so we, it, there was a big delta between 20 and 21 but we were adjacent to them and in the five years where we uh, were, were we completed the earnout when we joined with them and merged with them and took over their company. Um, they are now number three. So, so it was a it, it was a real journey. It was fantastic. 
Do you think what you learnt in those five years in, inside a big company, having sold, having done the diligence, having had the lawyers around the table, the accountants and everyone else, did you learn very different and useful things versus the first six years where you essentially built the business? And if you did, what were they? Yeah, I think I remember. I remember the um, being. This is interesting for for lawyers uh, listening, the Mishcon people. It was it was the biggest conference room I've ever been in, with the most number of documents I've ever seen in my life, with the most number of signatures required to do the deal. I did have a brief moment of of um, seller's remorse, but it didn't last very long. Um, so yeah, I think the the experience of. What, what effectively happened when we sort of helicoptered into Young and Rubicam London, we became Rainey Kelly Campbell Roth Wynar. There's another long, um, long word. Um, what, if, what effectively happened was that we became bosses as well as leaders. Pre- previously, we were leaders in our own company. It was a enterprise. It was a startup. It was it was doing really well. When you take over a company of 450 people, you suddenly have a whole different set of jobs to do because you're the boss of a really significant big business. You're part of an international network. So you're looking up, you're looking over the over the pond, you're looking, as it turned out, the following year to Martin Sorrell, which was, which was very interesting and, and, and a whole other experience in itself. And you are managing a, a very large group of people. So you have to do completely different things. So that was partly why we did it, because we, as individuals, Individuals knew that we wanted the company and the people in it to be able to grow and to give them that space to grow. And also for ourselves, um, we wanted new challenges as well. So that we did do different jobs after that. We became bosses as well as leaders. Stay with me for more from my business shaper, MT Rainey. Time for some more music. This is Nancy Wilson. I hope it's true because she says the best is yet to come. That was Nancy Wilson and the best is yet to come. MT Rainey is my business shaper. We'll be talking about the transition from being a leader to being a boss. Now, you you did your earn out, as you said, in 2005, things came to an end. Mm-hmm. What did that feel like? I mean, you created a baby, which has become a grown-up, which has then really spread its wings and part of an international network, as you said, and you're suddenly, uh, in your own right, someone who's been through, created a company, nurtured the company, merged a company, sold a company, all in the space of about 12 years Mm -hmm, or so. Amazing. What did it feel like? Were you ready to stop? Or was it the sense there was another chapter and you just needed to dust yourself off and start again? Mm, well, well, um, I think it, it, 2005 was a very particular time. It was ju- it, we'd had the first um, internet uh, crash at that point, and we were starting to see a new kind of internet emerge, which was, of course, social media. Um, and so that world was completely changing again. Also, after the earnout, we we I mean, some of us did stay. Someone left. One of us left before the earnout. A couple of us stayed a bit longer, and one of us is still there. Um, so it wasn't a question of having to leave. It, it was just it was a bit of a question for me of having that job was done for me personally. I had the agency was in fantastic shape. We had great um, succession management in the form of the, the people you'll have heard of now that went on to form Adam and Eve, the wonderful James Murphy and 
Ben and David. So I, I was very, very happy that that job was really done. And could it get any better than this? And also for me, the career path would have been in that big international network. The career path would have been back to America. You know, the bigger jobs are go and run New York, go and do something big in America. Since I'd already been there, that didn't really apply or appeal. So I just thought it's probably time. You know, I've got the wherewithal. I've got the opportunity. I think I'll step out mm. because everything's in good shape and do something a little bit more, uh, certainly more digital. I was very, very interested in, in social media and the, the, the social Internet um, and something probably a bit more for good, something that would be giving something back. And you mentioned succession planning and you mentioned the team of people that have indeed gone on to create another fantastic agency and, and yeah. mentoring as such, therefore, and coaching people and bringing the best out of them is, is obviously part of your DNA, which would explain why you created Horse's Mouth, which is this online mentoring service. I imagine also you didn't mention the M word, the money word, but when you have money in the bank to a certain extent, yeah. whether it's you know one pound or a hundred pounds, whatever makes makes it work for you, there is a sense of liber- liberation. I imagine so you've been able to do other things. Has that liber- has it liberated you, or is it just me thinking that that would ma- have made a difference? Because you don't seem driven by money. No, I, I, it's really weird, and it sounds uh, a pretentious thing to say, but I'm really not interested in money. Uh, you know, I do have a financial advisor who manages a, a couple of bits for me, and he's absolutely shocked by my lack of interest and my total trust in him. Uh, I have absolutely no interest in money. Um, having said that, it is it was liberate in 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 as much as. Had I been interested in money, I would have stayed where I was and accumulated more of a pile. Whereas I didn't do that. I had what I needed. Uh, I had a great house. I'd been able to buy a house. I was able to go on nice holidays and live reasonably well. That's all I need. Um, And they couldn't take that away from me. So it's liberating in that sense, yes. Uh, But I think you're right. And I do hear a lot of people say that... um, really successful entrepreneurs, as you say, are really hardly ever really motivated by money. And I think that, that that has always been true, whether it's true now of the young technology field where kids really do think they can make a mint by selling a widget that's done well. Um, I'm not sure that's so true now, but certainly certainly then um, money was not the motivating factor. We'll have our final chat with MT, plus play track from Jason Moran's tribute to the Fats Waller. That's after the latest traffic and travel here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM, in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. That was Ain't Misbehaving from Jason Moran. M.T. Rainey is my business shaper just for a few precious minutes. And if you've been listening earlier, you hopefully would have been inspired by the fact she said money isn't the only important thing. Values are important and um, all the things that she's gone and done. Now, you have done lots of things beyond creating horse's mouth. You, you've been asked and you do sit on the board of Channel 4. You're involved in the Sector Skills Council as the, as the vice chair of the skill set. These this portfolio life that you have now, and of course your chair of Think, the, mm-hmm. the digital agency, a big part of that as well. Do you enjoy jumping from bit to bit? Is it a bit like having lots of clients to worry about, and the fact that your brain works in that way? Does it is it more productive with more problems? It suits my life at the moment. I would say that I definitely don't feel the same 
as if I'm contributing as much as I did when I ran my own business. So I think it isn't, you don't approach those things with as much passion. But you do feel that uh, you can make contributions, but the contributions are so sort of packaged up and tidied away that it's not, you can't affect the whole thing, really. It's not as passionate mm. uh, a part of one's life as the previous, or certainly in my case, it might be for others. So it, you have to adjust to being slightly external to the main workings of the organisations that you're advising. I mean, it's it's still a very valuable role and you can add value and one tries to, but I think it it is less innovating than running your own business or being an executive in a company or even in those companies. But you've been, and, and, and I can completely understand that, it makes perfect sense not being at the core of things and, and, and that impact, as you said. But it must be nice being sought after because WH Smith has asked you in the past, you've been on the board as a non-exec director, you've been, I think you were a, a trustee of um, the political think tank Demos. I mean, these are things that say you are well respected. As you look back now, I mean, does that feeling of affirmation matter to you? Do you need other people to tell you that? Or has it always been an internal thing? Uh, no, that's always nice. That's that's great. So uh, it's always nice to be in demand, uh, if you say so. But um, yeah, I, I've always been fairly kind of impervious to, to what other people think. But it's of course, it's always nice to know that you still have skills that are relevant. And of course, I feel I do. So uh, particularly, I think, um, in the whole area of, of, of mentoring people and seeing, you know, seeing where people are going wrong and can go right and helping people, you know, navigate that is uh, is something that's very motivating to me across all of the portfolio that I have. And across all of that portfolio, what do you think the next few years hold for you? What sort of things will you be trying to shape as you look at the different things that you're involved in? Well, I'd like to um, see Think become the very famous, um, successful digital agency that it deserves to be, and um, it's on track to do that. I think we're coming up for some very interesting times with the review of public service broadcasting, so I'd like to support Channel 4 in their endeavours in the next couple of years on that, um, when they're doing brilliantly at the moment. And I'd like to, I'd probably like to pivot Horse's Mouth into something a little bit more I would say a bit more commercial or more commercially founded. Uh, right now it's a not-for-profit, but I think it will probably help more people if it is in a more commercial model. And just before I ask your song choice, and thank you for being so honest with me, one word answer. Good time to go into the creative industries, yes or no? Yes, absolutely, yes. Good. That's what I thought you'd say. Hoped you'd say that. Mm. Fantastic. MT, thank you so much for being my business shaper. Tell me about your song choice. What is it and why have you chosen it? So um, when you were all listening to Depeche Mode and, and uh, Bronski Beats and Frankie Goes to Hollywood in the 80s, I was uh, living in San Francisco and you could only get those on very scratchy radio stations, which I did. I did try and keep up with the 80s music scene, but really the soundtrack of my 80s was more along the lines of Joe Sample. And so I've chosen Rainbow Seeker from that wonderful album. I think he's a fabulous jazz pianist. So um, I'll have that, please. Here it is for you. Thank you so much. This is Rainbow Seeker from Joe Sun.
That was Rainbow Seeker from Joe Sample. The song choice of my business shaper today, M.T. Rainey. Talk about an innovator, 100% focused on innovation. Unbelievably insightful person, someone who really sought to get under the skin of a problem and solve it. And fundamentally, a believer in helping people realise their potential. What a great mix and not surprisingly, a successful individual. Do join me again, same time, same place, for another edition of Jazz Shapers. That's 9am next Saturday morning here on Jazz FM. In the meantime, though, stay with us because coming up next, it's Mr. Nine. Nigel Williams. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM in partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal.